I'm looking to answer these four very simple questions. Number one, uh, where does the church come from? Number two, where is the church going to end up? Thirdly, what is the church in the here and now? And then fourthly, how then should we live? So first of all, to kick things off, where does the church come from? Now, to answer that question, uh, let me give you a five or six-minute summary of one of the major plot lines in the Bible. So if you're sitting comfortably, we'll start in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that from the word go, God has always wanted a people. Uh, It's like God created the entire universe so that he could, first of all, make Adam and Eve. And he told them, I want you to go ahead and fill the earth, and you will be my people, and you'll look to me as your God. It's a pretty stunning start to the story, full of so much hope and so much promise, so much opportunity and so much potential. But tragically, just a couple of chapters in, they turn away from God and sin enters into the world, marring the relationship between them and God. Uh, And God told them that there would be some consequences. But the Bible teaches that even when we are faithless, he continues to be faithful. And so although by chapter 6, sin had got so incredibly bad that God was tempted just to blot out all of humanity, in his mercy, he kept the human race going through a guy called Noah. And then as the story unfolds further, we see in Genesis 12 that God puts his hand on a guy called Abraham, uh, later to be known as Abraham, and tells him, you're going to be the father of my people, and out of you will come the whole nation of Israel, and they're going to be my special people. I will bless them, and through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God says, among the peoples of the earth... I want my own special people. I will bless them, and they will bless all the other nations of the earth. But at that point in history, God's special people were Israel. And God took this seriously. And so when Israel were captive in Egypt, God said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then if you're familiar with the Old Testament books of judges and kings, throughout that whole era, God's people were often faithless. But through it all, God remained faithful. You see, Israel was God's special people, and God has always wanted a people. And then about halfway through the Old Testament, it's like things change gear. That's when the prophets arrive on the scene, and they start saying stuff that the Israelites couldn't really get their heads around. They, they started to say that the time is coming where God was going to blow open his people. It was no longer going to be just an Israelite deal, non-Israelites, Gentiles, people of every tribe and tongue are going to be able to become part of God's people. And so, for example, in Isaiah 49, God says, it is too small a thing for the Lord to just be the God of Israel. It's going to spread to far-off islands and distant shores. In other words, it's going to get way bigger. Ezekiel says that the time's coming where the people of God will not be defined by a national group or geography. It's going to be defined by those who have the Spirit of God inside them. Haggai, another Old Testament prophet, said, you think the former house is impressive, you just wait until you see the future house, the enlarged 
people of God. Now, how on earth was all this going to happen? Any guesses? Through Jesus, always a home banker, through Jesus, that's right, through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus was going to come and he was going to launch the church, which was this new, enlarged people of God. That's why when Jesus, one day, was walking towards John the Baptist, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just Israel anymore. It just got way bigger. He's going to take away the sin of the whole world. And that's why when the church was birthed in Acts 2, you know, and the the Spirit came on them in the upper room, there was wind, there was fire, and they spoke in different languages. Get this. God planned Pentecost, but the whole launch of the church to coincide with an international festival in Jerusalem. It says that there are people there from all around the world, and every one of them could hear these people in the upper room praising God in their own language. What's going on? It just got huge. That's what's going on, that the people of God just got even bigger. Remember how when Jesus died on the cross... The curtain keeping people out of the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom. That was effectively the Father saying, you know what, through the death of my Son, you can all be forgiven of your sins, and non-Jews can now become part of my people. And it kind of reached the climax in Revelation 5, verse 9. The angels are singing a song of worship to Jesus. They sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, and with your blood you have purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue. In heaven, the angels rejoice at the work of the cross for all kinds of reasons. This one here is because the salvation of God isn't a black man's deal or a white man's deal. It's not an Eastern deal or a Western deal. And it's certainly not just an Israelite deal. Jesus Christ is Lord over all the earth. And he says that people of every tribe and tongue can now become a part of his people. Listen, that is what it has always been about. We start in Genesis 1 with God wanting a people, and it all ends in Revelation 21 with this glorious picture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In five minutes, that is the story of the Bible. So a bumper day today, you've had the story of Church Central in five minutes and you've had the whole story of the church and all of time in five minutes as well. It's pretty breathtaking, isn't it? Jesus has made salvation available 
to the breadth of humanity. What we're doing here is a small part of all of that. So that's where we've come from. Secondly then, where is the church going to end up? Well, I think we've already started answering that one, haven't we? In the future age, in the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns, the people of God are going to rule and reign with Christ. And what will the church be like then? This is what a guy called John Stott says. He says, while the church is walking in this world of sin and shame, bespattered by mud and mire, there are stains and spots on her. The church is not clean here, although she is being cleansed. But when he presents her to himself with all the principalities and powers looking on at this marvelous thing and scrutinizing and examining her, there will not be a single blemish. There will not be a spot on her. It is impossible to describe this perfection. That is where we're going to end up. It's where we've come from. It's where we're going. And question number three, what's the church in the here and now? Well, what's the church in this age right now? Well, the Bible describes it in some pretty extraordinary ways. I want to start by looking at perhaps one of the clearest descriptions of the church in the whole of the New Testament. It's found in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter, if you remember, uh, he, he was the one who Jesus prophesied would be the rock on which the church was built. Needless to say, Peter had a pretty big view of the church. Have a listen to what he says. He says, but you, plural, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you collectively may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. I just want you to catch something of the awesome, awesome privilege of these verses. Just work through it bit by bit. First of all, we are a chosen people. God chose us to be part of this profound thing he's doing. Remember, he's always wanted a people, and he handpicked us to be part of this brand new people group that he's creating. As we've seen, it's a people group that is built across cultures. It's made up of all tribes, all tongues, all ethnic groups. So this is way bigger than just you. As I've seen, it's bigger than your blackness, bigger than your whiteness, bigger than your cultural background, bigger than your gender or your marital status. It's about something so much bigger than you just as an individual. It's the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to break down every single division and bring us together as one. Just to speak frankly, we recognize we're not there yet as a church. We recognize we've still got some way to go to reflect all of this here at Church Central. I think we've got to get way more intentional about how we reflect what God's doing among different ethnic groups and cultures, bringing them together, reconciling their differences under this glorious banner of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think we still need to broaden our understanding of what it means for us to be part of God's chosen people. Peter goes on. You're a chosen people. You're also a royal priesthood. Now, you may or may not be excited by the prospect of being part of a group of priests. I hear no applause, no whoops, no fist pumps in the air. But if you grasp what this means, it's pretty breathtaking. Now, the basic definition of a priest in the Bible is a person who serves God and has the right of access to him. Back in the Old Testament, this was a privilege restricted to just one of the tribes of Israel. But now, in the church, we are all priests. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, each and every one of us has clear and constant access to God. We, we all get to live in the presence of God. This is true for us individually, I think the emphasis here is on us collectively, us together. You know, we, we really mustn't fall into the trap of just reducing everything we read to becoming all about me individually. Uh, I think if we do that with this passage, we, we miss the sheer scale of what Peter is saying. He, he said, it didn't say you are a royal priest. It says you are a royal priesthood. So he's speaking not just to an individual, though, uh, of course, it does have individual implications, but rather the emphasis is on a group of people together. Uh, again, this is about something so much bigger than just you, that, that there's something incredibly powerful about us serving together and experiencing more of the presence of God together. God's design is for each of us to play a part in revealing more of Him to one another, which incidentally is why we worship in the way we do. Earlier on, different ones of us leading us with contributions, uh, uh, revealing more of the purposes, the heart, the plan of who God is, what He wants to do among us, how He wants to encourage us. We, we, we need one another. That's God's design. Now, look where He goes next. He says, we're also a holy nation. Uh, again, uh, for fear of repeating myself, this is plural. Uh, you see, th this passage just does not work individually. You, you cannot really be a nation just by yourself. This, this doesn't work in isolation. God wants a people. He wants a priesthood. He wants a holy nation. It is way bigger than you. It's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than Church Central. It's way bigger than any denomination. We together are a holy nation. And the implication of this word holy is that we should visibly demonstrate that we're different, that we're set apart, that we are a people belonging to God. It's like we are God's possession. If you look at this biblically and you look at this historically, that means that God is protecting us. God is watching over our every step. We're, we're being protected in ways we cannot fathom, in ways we do not see. That's why Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we're his possession, what could ever happen to us? What, what could ever become of the church that God doesn't allow and work out for good in the end? So we're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. 
We're a holy nation, and we're a people belonging to God. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is regularly referred to as the body of Christ. Now, again, this is so much more than an empty theological phrase. God means business when he says we are his body. So, for example, when Saul was killing Christians left, right, and center, remember God says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's kind of like a mafia deal. If you touch my church, you're touching me. Don't get me wrong. We're not God, but God does say, you, the church, you're my body. Get this, it's so profound. We are the body of Christ. Where do people on earth get to see what God is like? Through us, through the church, we are his body. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, um, we, we are, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, Paul says, through the church, God is displaying his manifold, his multicolored wisdom to the heavens and the earth. God's plan is to display himself, what is like his glory through us. Earlier on in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul also says, we're the temple of God. We are the home in which God lives by his spirit. God doesn't live in a building. It's not like there are special religious places where you have to go to try and find God. No, we are the temple of God. That's why we can meet in a school hall like this, because it's not about the building. It's about a people. God says, I fill the whole universe. I'm everywhere all at once. But the place I have specifically chosen to be seen most vividly and most tangibly is in you when you gather together like this. Moving on. New Testament also describes us as a family. We, we love family vocabulary here. The most prevalent name for God in the New Testament, he's our father. Most prevalent metaphor, picture for the church in the New Testament, we are a family. Church is so much more than a meeting we come to and attend. We are the family of God. This isn't something we, we merely attend, that this is somewhere we belong. And then, in my mind, here's the biggest and the best one of all. Can you believe that the church is the purpose of all creation? Ephesians 1, Jesus is head over everything. Why? for the church. He's just head over the church. He's head over everything else for the church. God set up creation so he could have a people. It is all for the church. Uh, as the message version of this verse puts it, the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is very much peripheral to the church. We're not an add-on. We're it. That The church is the purpose of all creation. Which eventually, finally, leads us to question four. In light of all of this, how then should we live? Here are a few suggestions. First up, I think if all of this is true, we should honor the church. You know, uh, I get to be involved with quite a few weddings 
in the church here. For me, the best moment isn't when the bride walks down the aisle, although that's pretty spectacular. It's actually when I'm outside waiting for the bride to arrive, that sense of will she, won't she, the kind of drama where, oh dear, it's getting a bit late, it's a bit awkward, is she going to arrive? And then finally, eventually, in the nick of time, the car pulls up, and what happens? The bridesmaids jump out, and they open the door for the bride, and even if it's pouring with rain, they don't care about their hair or their dresses, they've got the umbrella over the bride, and they say, watch out for this puddle over here, and couple step this way, that they're doing everything possible to get the bride safely to her husband in tip-top condition. You know what? Those of us who carry any kind of leadership in the church, not a good description of us is bridesmaids. Essentially, that's what I am. I'm a bridesmaid. It's like I'm looking after another man's bride. And so we're not harsh with her. Yes, we're firm at times. And yes, we challenge and we provoke. But we're never harsh. In Acts 20, Paul says to elders, the church is bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He's saying leaders Treat her gently, handle her with care, help her be all she can be, but through it all, honour her, because the church belongs to Jesus. And just by way of an aside, that's why we refuse to speak badly about other churches. Even if we don't agree on everything, we still honour other expressions of the church. We, We pray for them. We want them to succeed. We believe the best. We defend them. And we celebrate, even when God seems to be blessing them more than us. We honor the church. How then should we live? Secondly, we should be biased towards being community rather than being an individual. We've seen, haven't we, how the Bible is all about God creating this group of people who will bring glory to him. Remember, he's after a people, not a person. The problem is, we live in a culture, don't we, that is all about us as individuals desperately trying to bring more and more glory to ourselves. So uh, I'm going to take care of my family and my stuff and my career and my needs and my interests. And so when we try and marry the church together with our culture, The danger is it continues to be all about me. It's like I come to the church primarily for me. You know, what's the church doing for me? Did I like the service today? I don't think they're taking care of me well enough. And I don't like the way this decision, this change impacts on me. And even when we say we long for the church to have more of a sense of family or more of a sense of community, often we're merely thinking of it in terms of my needs being met. Not a whole lot of thought about others and me giving myself, even at sacrificially, even at cost of myself, for the benefit of the people around me. And I've got to confess that over the years, I think inadvertently, I've perhaps encouraged this kind of individualistic thinking because I've preached on certain passages in the Bible and ended up applying them to you as an individual. Like, you as an individual are a light to the world, 
And you as an individual are a temple for the Holy Spirit, which is true, but that is not the emphasis in the Bible. It's more a case of all of us together being a temple of the Holy Spirit that God inhabits and lives in, and that together we are forming one colossal light that the world would see our collective good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. It's really not about one brick lying on the ground all by itself that people kind of wander up to, look at, and go, wow, that's a really impressive brick. No, it's a whole bunch of bricks joined together to form a dwelling place for God. And when people see it, they say, that is some serious temple. Please, whatever you do, do not have delusions of grandeur. You alone, don't mean to be offensive here, but not very impressive. Me alone, deeply unimpressive. But together, we are the people of God, and it is glorious. How then should we live? We should be humble, we should be comforted, and we should be confident. If Jesus is head of the church, I think that's going to make us humble when we succeed, because he's the head, it's all for him. It makes us comforted in difficult, challenging times, times when it feels like we're failing because he's still the head, uh, and it makes us confident for the future. Uh, Remember Jesus said, I will build my church, and not even the authority structures of hell will prevail against it. The kingdom is coming. The church around the world is growing. We have a bright future. Why? Because Jesus Christ is head of his church, How then should we live? Surely we should prioritize the church, shouldn't we? Ephesians 5 instructs husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. That's why we give our lives for the church. It's why we're prepared day in, day out, week in, week out to be outrageously inconvenienced for the church. Why? Because it's normal Christianity that the church is the climax of all history. It's the reason for history. It's the body of which Christ is the head. It's what Jesus died for. Listen, if you're indifferent, if you're casual towards the church, I think you need to wake up. You you cannot love Jesus and not love his church. It's like someone saying to me, Jonathan, I'm really interested in you, but couldn't care less about Helen, your wife. In which case, I'm thinking you're not really interested in me because we're we're married. We, We can't be separated out like that. If we prioritize Jesus, we prioritize the church. How then should we live? We serve the church. We serve the church with everything we've got. We don't serve just to get the job done. No, we serve because Christ, our master, came not to be served, but to serve. We serve because it's how God has designed for the whole church to hold together. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 15. He says that what you and I do are serving 
actually is like glue that holds the church together. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We serve because it's part of the dynamic of the togetherness of God's people. God doesn't want you to be like a rolling stone. Rolling stones roll in, receive, and then roll out again. No, it's each stone with its own unique shape and texture being built together, each one playing their part. And so before I finish, if this hasn't quite been practical enough for you, I just want to lob out a few specific ways that perhaps we might go about applying this message. I simply want to invite you to take what for you is the next step in your commitment to the church. First of all, maybe sitting there thinking, well, this is all well and good, but I'm not even sure if I'm part of this church. I'm a pretty irregular attender around here. If that's you, I want to encourage you to consider becoming a habitual attender. Now, also just to say, I'm aware we have all kinds of people here. You might be here and you might not believe in Jesus. You might still be exploring for yourself the claims of Christianity that's wonderful. You are so incredibly welcome here. This, this is a great place, a safe place for you just to keep asking your questions and keep on exploring. You, you're, you're welcome to come whenever, however regularly or irregularly you want to. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I think Hebrews 10 verse 25 is a helpful verse for us. It says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, make this a priority. Make it a habit to meet together with the rest of the church family. I only miss Sundays for exceptional circumstances. When we launch our new community groups after Easter, join one of them. Be committed. Play an active part. There is no downside whatsoever. At worst, you'll probably make some new friends. At best, together you will encounter more of God. Some of you may be sitting there rather smugly thinking, well, I'm here every week and I'm very invested, very involved. This is for the people around me. Well, just hold off a moment in your smugness. You may be a regular attender, but I want to encourage you to consider membership. To, to move from attending to belonging, according to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47, the first church devoted themselves to the fellowship. Devotion, not casualness. Those who were saved were also added, joined to a local church community. And as we've just seen in Ephesians 4.16, that the whole church holds together and grows as each person participates. It's like a spiritual deal. When you start serving in the church, you invariably start feeling more joined, more connected to the church. Just to say, at the end of this little mini-series, we're actually going to invite you 
to express your commitment to the church here by becoming a member. And one of the things we'd love to sit down and have a chat with you about is how you could perhaps participate more in the life of this church. As I said, we need you. You, you have a contribution to make that will enlarge the work of God among us. Love to have that conversation with you. And then lastly, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm already a committed part of this church, I've expressed my membership, I'm in, I serve, I'm part of this thing, I simply want to encourage you not to plateau. Keep on growing. 1 Timothy 4, 15, let your progress be evident to all. God wants you to keep progressing, to keep growing, to be more and more effective. Hebrews 10, 24 says, we should consider how we spur one another on to further good works. How could you do more of that to the people around you? 1 Corinthians 12 says, you've got unique gifts to contribute to this church's mission. As I said, we need them. We need you. It might mean taking on more responsibility in the church. It might mean taking on less responsibility in the church and innovating with the gifts God's given you to advance his agenda in every domain of life, at school, at work, in the arts, in politics, in business, in the media. But have a think about it for you. What more could you contribute to our mission together? So there you have it. That is the story of the church, the, the local church, Church Central South, and the church in all of time that God is inviting you to join and belong to. Now, if you believe all of this, and I hope you do, uh, if you don't, I'll sit down with you later and go through it all over again, but uh, if you believe all of this, and if I've managed to just convince you even a little bit about the importance of the church, the centrality of the church, which incidentally is one of the reasons we call ourselves church central. The church is absolutely central to the purposes and plans of God on earth. If you're convinced, I simply encourage you just to consider, think through what the next step might be for you.